UEG Talks, Gastroenterology to Go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the UEG Talks. Uh, I am Pradeep Mundre, and I'm your host for today. I'm really excited today to welcome Julia Miley, the chair of the UEG Scientific Committee, who has joined me to co-host this special episode on the best of UEG. Welcome, Julia. Thank you, Pradeep. Um, It's a pleasure being here and recording this UEG Talks. And I'm really looking forward to our guest today, but I'm not going to do a spoiler here. (laughs) So um, in this episode, uh, as Julia said, we are covering the highlights and the best of cancer that was presented at the UG Week in Copenhagen recently. Usually when I sort of go to the international conferences, they're dominated by IBD and endoscopy topics. Um, uh, certainly at the UG Copenhagen, there was plenty of new science in the cancer field. And I, I feel as gastroenterologists, we tend to not ignore, we tend to probably focus less on these a lot of times. Um, we're always involved in management of cancers, either, you know, mostly in early cancers, and then we usually pass this on to our own colleagues. And I think knowledge on the cancers and cancer therapy, even, you know, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, is, is probably important for us as patients often in their journey of cancer go between us, the surgeons and the oncologists. So I think having knowledge and uh, being up to date about these things are important, and I'm glad UEG um, as an organization have focused on this and include a lot of abstracts in their uh, in their conference. I'll let Julia do the honors of introducing our guest today. Well, now I can be uh, can actually be the spoiler. I'm happy to introduce Anna Maria Bukalau. She's a gastroenterologist and digestive oncologist in Brussels at the University Hospital. She did her PhD on hepatocellular carcinoma. She's a member of the European Society of Digestive Oncology. And she's now a member of the UEG Scientific Committee. And I'm very much looking forward to Anna Maria structuring our oncology program in the upcoming week. So, Anna Maria, we are really happy to have you here today. And I'd like to really just kick off with my first question. And this is, could you tell us what was the most groundbreaking paper, as per your opinion, which was presented at UEG? And why do you think is this paper so important for all of us treating oncological patients? Hello, Julia. Hello, Pradeep. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for the invitation. I am very happy to join you today for this exciting podcast on highlights on oncology. And uh, I shall start with uh, a very interesting abstract that was presented in the Molecular and Translational Aspects in Pancreatic Cancer session. It was a very promising combination treatment for KRAS mutant tumors. So mutant KRAS is present in over 90% of pancreatic cancer and uh, 
30 to 40 percent of lung and colorectal cancers. As you know, pancreatic cancer, despite all the progress that we did, uh, remains um, with a very poor poor prognosis. And in this uh, KRAS mutant uh, patients targeting RAS downstream effectors like MEK or PI3K alone induces in time tumor resistant and recurrent. So this uh, team showed in an animal model that combining uh, inhibition of a non-receptor tyrosine phosphatase upstream of KRAS, the SHIP2, and a key serine 309 kinase downstream of KRAS, the ERK, is synergic and superior to single therapy with better tumor growth suppression and reduced proliferation rate. So this even led to an ongoing phase one uh, A1B trial, the Sherpa trial, uh, that uh, tests this combination in patients with KRAS mutant lung, colon, and pancreatic cancers. And actually, uh, they presented their first uh, results on 17 patients in an abstract in the ESMO Congress in Madrid last week. So it's very promising, and I'm waiting uh, further results from this study. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, SHIP2 is expressed in numerous cells. So did they see um, any side effects by inhibiting um, tyrosine phosphorylation in such a broad sense? Now, when they started, they started by SHIP2 and MEK, and then uh, actually they shifted to uh, SHIP2 and ERK. Uh, but the, the tolerance was very, uh, was very good in their, uh, in their animal models. And right now in the Sherpa trial, so they are testing several, um, several dosages. Uh, and they have already come with a dosage that is well, to uh, well tolerated and they're going, uh, onward with the, the study. Anna, when I go to the conferences, I usually go to topics that I'm not familiar with because, you know, the, the familiar topics, I usually go to some specialist meetings. But sometimes it really helps if I go to topics that are in my own field because there's so much new that's happening in the old subject, so to say, let's say. Um, is there anything that was presented at the uh, in Copenhagen that would change or at least challenge our routine clinical practice that we are already doing. I know what you mean about going uh, at the at the sessions that you don't know much about, but if you were cruising uh, in the upper GI presentations, uh, you will find one top abstract actually that shared that anti reflux surgery is not superior to anti reflux medication in the prevention of esophageal adenocarcinoma in patients with Barrett's esophagus. So this was a multinational and population based cohort study, including an impressive number of patients. They had 33,900 patients from the northern countries. And also they had a very impressive follow-up peer, uh, period of 32 years. And they actually showed uh, that the overall uh, hazard ratio, so calculated using uh, multivariate cost regression, was not decreased in patients having undergone uh, reflux surgery compared to non-operated patients that were using anti-reflux medication. So it was actually in favor of medical therapy 
And despite uh, the, the rising follow-up years, uh, the SRA ratio continued to increase uh, from 1.8 within one to four years of follow-up and uh, going to 4.4 after more than 10 years of follow-up. So actually this very extensive data uh, favors medication compared to surgery, but only when it uh, comes to risk uh, of developing adenocarcinoma, of course patients who have symptoms of reflux, that's another question. But we're talking about cancer prevention. That's, that's very interesting and massive data. Um, so I guess it, it's safe to say that medical treatment is as good as or, or even better than surgery. In that you mentioned that the, the outcomes were slightly worse off in the surgical group. Uh, I was wondering, because generally the patients we sent for surgery are the ones with really bad symptoms. Was there clearly some sort of selection bias there that kind of tilted uh, the risk towards surgical group? It's true that surgery does worse, but the selection... So patients uh, that were treated for surgery... Maybe there were patients that also had persistent symptoms and partial response to PPI, though say, there might be a selection bias, actually. Okay. And uh, my last thing, did they adjust to, because one of the clearly clear risk factors, increased risk factors are the length of the barrels, uh, did they adjust to that variable at all? They did not have information uh, from the endoscopic features. So um, this was a, a population-based uh, cohort study. So they did not have uh, access to uh, the, the endoscopic features. So they did not uh, have any information of the Barron's length and the difference in Barron's length between the two groups, actually. But one of the questions actually that arises uh, from this, uh, this study is patient uh, in patients that have Barrett's esophagus and quite uh, refractory uh, reflux. Uh, do we ablate before surgery? Do we do surgery and then ablate? That's a question that remains uh, to, to be answered and we shall see. But however, it's it was quite compelling data. Yeah, my surgical colleagues always decline those patients. They say, yeah, no, I don't think, just stick to PPI. So they, they, they're, they're ahead of the game by the looks of it. Right. So that is a real interesting um, information. And I think it's always good to know that doing less might be even beneficial for the patient. What I would like to ask you is, was there anything at UEG Week where you believe that it will really change your clinical practice or the existing standard treatments? So actually, uh, the last couple of years have been really exciting in ecology. So there are several hot topics that inflame the MDTs. And um, there were some topics that were discussed in this uh, year's UEG weeks, week. Um, and uh, I found that uh, the session, uh, What's New in Oncology in 2023, uh, had two uh, very nice talks about uh, groundbreaking uh, uh, treatments that might change the standard of care for uh, patients. For example, uh, Miriam Shalabi from uh, the Netherlands uh, Cancer Institute in Amsterdam asked the question that's really on everyone's mind, will immune therapy replace chemoradiation and 
or surgery for MSI high colorectal tumors. So MSI high colorectal tumors uh, so, um, are represent more or less 15% of colorectal cancers. Uh, they are either sporadic or germline mutations, so Lynch syndrome associated with Lynch syndromes. And uh, there was uh, her group actually uh, showed very promising uh, data uh, for uh, these patients in the first niche st uh, tr uh, study in 2020. And now in 2022, uh, the niche two uh, study enrolled only MS high patients. There were uh, 112 uh, patients enrolled. Mostly had quite uh, nasty high risk grade uh, three tumors and they received one cycle of double immune therapy, so an anti-CTLA-4 and one anti-PD-1, followed by one cycle of anti-PD-1 and then uh, surgery in the six weeks after in inclusion. And they have seen a very high rate of pathologic response. They have seen a complete pathologic response of in 67% of patients. And remember, these are really mostly big, high-grade, uh, big, uh, high-risk grade three tumors. And they had a major pathological response, so less than 10% of viable tumors uh, in 96% uh, of patients. And there were only 4% grade three or four immune-related adverse events. And disease-free survival is, is still awaited, but these are really promising data. And also in rectal cancer for MSI patients, uh, there was a phase two study for from Chercek and his team, they administered a single agent uh, anti-PD-1 monoclonal antibody every three weeks for six months for a stage two or three rectal adenocarcinoma. And it showed actually a 100% clinical complete response. So no patients had to go to surgery, which is quite uh, quite amazing. Uh, and the minimum uh, follow-up was of, uh, of six months and there were no recurrences. And also very hot in this moment is the TNT, so the total new adjuvant uh, therapy in rectal cancers. Uh, this was uh, presented by Dr. Denost for, uh, from Bordeaux. Uh, so the current issues in colorectal cancers are distant metastasis and organ preservation. So this is when TNT comes into discussion. But there are different regimens of radiotherapy, different schemes of chemotherapy. Uh, what comes first? Uh, when? Uh, uh, what tumor, what treatment for what tumor. And uh, he actually dissected really the, uh, the most important studies, uh, in his talk. Um, he presented actually the two studies that validated organ preservation in rectal cancer, the ACOSOG trial from the USA and the GRECAR2 study from France that used a selective approach. Uh, they, uh, treated only teeth two and uh, small T3 tumors with local excision afterwards, not with watch and wait. And they showed about 60% of complete uh, and subcomplete response in both trials. Uh, so the floor is open for questions uh, in this topics, but I think the standard of care will change in the, in the next year. So it was, those two were really, really great, uh, great talks and it was a great session. So, I mean, this is a really interesting time and I've got two small questions. So how would you suggest to follow up somebody who has completely responded to CPI therapy and radiation? Should you do a rectoscopy 
every six months or how would you proceed there? And on the other hand, I mean, we clearly see that that can cure our patients. So if they are MSI high, we can actually cure them with a checkpoint inhibitor. So should that be standard to actually detect MSS or MS, um, MSI status in all our patients routinely nowadays, or should uh, what should what should be the trigger point for measurement? I think that MSI uh, MSS MSI status is done from the beginning on the biopsies, um, and it is very important because it actually changes the the way we we see patients especially uh, colorectal cancer from for example in metastatic cancer um, immune therapy is now the standard first light treatment so it's something that we need to know from the beginning uh, and in local cancer uh, of course uh, it will change probably uh, for these patients uh, there are a lot of ongoing studies in Amsterdam for example uh, they are testing another combination of immune therapy uh, it will become become the standard of care for these patients um, how to follow them this that's a very very good question because um, it might be very challenging because I think uh, the most important will be to do a combination um, uh, follow-up. So we'll have to, uh, we'll need to have rectoscopy, let's say every three months in the beginning um, with uh, and see the scars, see if there is uh, any local regrowth, of course, MRI. Uh, and I think PET-CT will bring uh, quite uh, important and uh, valuable information to the, to the table as well. So this will be something to to add to to follow up. Do you think that MRI and um, EUS um, are really the method of choice, or do we need a PET CT to really find avid tumor? Because there might be due to treatment the scarring, and uh, you might overtreat patients in such a situation if you only say if you only do black and white imaging, if you want to say so. I think it's important to combine structural and metabolic imaging because the two together will give us actually complementary informations. Uh, the And also uh, what's very important in rectal cancer, uh, several data show it right now, is not only the tumory growth, but tumory growth is associated with distant metastasis. So I think PET-CT will be uh, of very great value for uh, distant metastasis as well. So, uh, Anna, that's really well said. Um, it looks like uh, gastroenterologists and oncologists are taking over from the surgeons uh, quickly. So We will put them out of business. Let's not share that with them. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's become more of a burden for us in clinical practice is the volume of sort of colonoscopies, and it's becoming pretty much unsustainable uh, in the long run. Uh, and what really interests me is how we avoid are they i was wondering if there's any science or any new knowledge that was presented in terms of non-invasive testing um at the ug at all so that would kind of probably prevent the number of probably reduce the number of colonoscopies that we do or anything in those lines we always have the uh, the fecal immunochemical test, the uh, the fit 
of course, in order to see uh, if there are, is blood in the stools. However, there was uh, very interesting data in terms of microbiome. So um, I hope that in the future, we will be able to include non, more non-invasive tests, such as fecal samples, uh, in order to check for changes in the gut microbiome that are that could be linked to precancerous or cancerous lesions. And uh, there was a very interesting abstract from uh, a Dutch team um, that um, where researchers linked the Dutch microbiome project to uh, the Dutch uh, nationwide pathology database in order to see if they uh, find any um, any changes in the microbiota of uh, patients uh, with colorectal cancer. And they found that patients who develop colonic lesions have a gut microbiome significantly different from general population. So that implies that the gut microbiota might be involved in the development of colorectal lesions and colorectal cancer. Anna Maria, it has been a wonderful time with you. Um, Pradeep and myself, we would really like to thank you for looking into the details of UEG Week for our listeners. And I'm pretty sure that you picked tremendous abstracts, which really broadened my horizon and hopefully also the horizon um, of our listeners. So thanks for joining us today and hope to see you soon in Vienna. Yes, we'll see each other in Vienna. And thank you very much for the invitation again. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope it was fun. And I hope there was a lot of important points taken from that. Uh, there's still so much more out there. So if you do want to go to the uh, MyUEG um, platform, there's much more abstracts uh, for the listeners to go through. Uh, if you just search UEG Talks on any of your platforms and um, press follow. Thank you so much.